You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. You will turn to John chapter 17. We've been walking through the final discourses of Jesus right before the crucifixion and the resurrection. In John 17, we have the Lord's Prayer. Now, oftentimes when you say the Lord's Prayer, you're thinking of Matthew chapter 6. But actually, that's the model prayer. The actual prayer of Jesus is John 17. And here we have the actual prayer that Jesus prayed. And I don't know about you, but I am very interested to know what Jesus would pray for. As God in the flesh, as, as God among us, I, I, would, I would be very interested to know, what did Jesus focus his prayer on? So pick it up in verse 20, John 17, verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I am in them and you in me, that they have become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. A righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Father, we pause in this moment and we say thank you for your provision, your grace that is fresh and new every morning. Father, we don't always live or think the way we ought to. We don't always say the right things at the right times, and sometimes, Father, we say completely the wrong things. Sometimes, Father, we have malice in our heart, and sometimes we withhold forgiveness. There are times, Father, that we gossip. There are times that our eyes see things and we dwell on it too long. Father, oftentimes we're greedy and sometimes lust fills our heart. And Father, the reality is, is that even for those of us who've put our faith in you, there are things in this world that grab our attention. So Father, before we even get into your word, we want to say, Father, we're sorry. Father, we're sorry that we make a mess of things. We ask, Father, for your forgiveness and your cleansing. We ask that just as your word says that you'll cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, that, that even now that would, that would be the reality. Father, we agree with you that they're wrong. We're not going to make any excuses. But Father, our desire this morning is to hear from you. And Father, we know that with sin in our lives and things that we've gotten wrong this week, we, we can't hear you as clearly as we need to. So, Father, I pray that you would forgive us, that we'd no longer be shackled to those things, and that, Father, we could hear your voice this morning above all things. 
Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a kid growing up, my, my dad would take me into the prayer room. The church I grew up in was a very small, independent, fiercely independent, fiercely fundamental Baptist church. And uh, there was a prayer room just down the hall from the, from the worship space. And the men would gather in one room and the women would gather in another room. And I can remember that it would be so loud in there that at times it would scare me to death. Um, seven, eight, nine years old, there's old pews around the Sunday school classroom that we were in. And, and every man in there would pray to the top of their lungs. I mean, it was loud. And I really wouldn't know what was going on in there. I mean, I, a young child, I just, I was confused by the whole thing. I didn't know what was going on. It was a little scary at times and everybody was loud. And, and even in times out in the worship space, if I didn't go back with my dad, I could hear the prayers out in the worship space from both the men and the women. What, I, what I've learned since that time is that if you're praying with someone, if, if you're sharing that time of prayer with another person, whether that be your spouse or maybe in a small group or, or somebody that you're just kind of walking in a discipleship partnership with, the reality is you can learn a lot of things by listening to someone else pray. Oftentimes I've asked people to pray in, in some of the small groups that I'm leading, and when they begin to pray, I'm listening not only to what they're praying, but I'm also listening to their heart. And the reality is, is that when you hear someone pray, you can, you can learn a lot about that person. You can learn a lot about their faith. You can learn if a person is, is Christ-centered or if they're self-centered. What's the difference? Well, the one difference is, is that if in that prayer we have a laundry list of things that we're kind of expecting God to do on our behalf and you hear very little worship or adoration, it's very possible that we become very self-centered in our prayers. We can learn if someone is motivated by love or malice. <laughs> I, heard a, I heard a guy pray one time. He was going through some hard stuff on his job. Uh, the boss that he worked for was not very pleasant to work for. And we were praying together, and, and he actually prayed judgment down upon his boss. It was not done in love. It was done in malice, great malice, as a matter of fact. You, you can learn if someone fears God or if they're simply commanding God to do something. Have you ever heard anybody pray in such a way where they are commanding God to do something? It'll set you on your heels when you hear it. I've actually done it. Not proud of that. That, that you're in some kind of a situation that you are commanding the creator of the universe to do what you want him to do. You can learn if a person has strong or weak faith. Oftentimes I've seen this with, with families where their loved one is about to pass away. And they are, they, they, the family knows this person is born again. They know this person is, is longing for heaven, even anticipating it. Yet the family is demanding that God give them another week or another month, even though they're suffering with cancer. Selfishness rather than faith. To say, God, we commit into your hands this dear brother or sister that put their faith in you a long time ago who doesn't want to spend another day on this earth suffering. You can, you can learn if a person is praying in pride or humility. You can learn if a person is worshiping God or seeking the applause of an audience. Oftentimes I'm asked to, to go to some public event or community event to either do a, an invocation or a benediction prayer. I was doing this event one time. It was a large event. 
Uh, and uh, there was a lot of people there. Um, it was not a religious event, but they, they wanted to have an opening prayer and a closing prayer. And my job was to do the closing prayer. Well, the guy who was doing the opening prayer was a politician. And during his prayer, he basically laid out his entire political platform in his prayer because there was an election cycle coming up. And the only opportunity he had to address the crowd was through his prayer. So what did he do? Instead of praying to a holy God and asking God to bless this meeting and, and move in this meeting, he spends the time praying his prayer as a platform by which you should vote for him. Made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. It was all I could do to sit there. You can learn a lot by listening to people pray. As a matter of fact, if you'll consider the prayers you're praying today, it'll tell you a lot about where you are with Christ and about your faith. Well, I don't know about you, but if, if, if Jesus is praying and we have documented his, if John has documented the prayer word for word for us, I want to know what that prayer is. What would the Son of God, God in the flesh, what would he pray? It's right here. And get this, not only did Jesus pray for the 11 disciples that are left, Jesus prayed for you if you are a follower of his. Look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, these being the 11. If you look at the previous verses in chapter 17, you'll see where Jesus prays for the 11. But in verse 20, he shifts his focus. It's almost as though Jesus is looking down through the corridors of time, and he could do that, by the way. He's God in the flesh. He's not inhabited by time or limited, other than what was limited through his flesh at that moment, those things that he decided not to utilize as God in the flesh. But make no mistake about it. Jesus could see the contents of the heart of the 11 that are with him, and he could look down through the corridors of time, and yes, he could even see you. So I don't know about you, if, if Jesus prayed for me and Jesus prayed for you, would you not be interested to know what Jesus prayed about on your behalf? There's a lot of controversy concerning where Jesus is at this moment. You, you know, we like to read the Gospels and understand, okay, Jesus was here and then he was here and he moved from this place to the next. And at John chapter 14, we have this challenge as to where Jesus actually is at this, at this moment. Some people say that Jesus and his disciples are still in the upper room. If you go back to John chapter 14, they're in the upper room. Uh, Jesus has already washed the feet of the disciples. Judas has just left at John 14. He's already left. He's out getting ready to betray Jesus. Jesus has washed their feet. They've observed Passover together. Jesus begins to talk about leaving them again. The disciples get really upset about that. And he goes through this discourse of telling them that, that he's going to go prepare a place. He's going to receive them unto himself. But at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says these words. He says, now, let us get up and leave from here. So did Jesus leave the upper room or are they still there? Some people say they're still in the upper room. Kind of like when you have a family reunion. You ever done this? You have a family reunion and, and you know, you're kind of wrapping down the evening. You've had the meal. Everybody's picking up their coats, getting ready to go, but you don't really leave for another hour. You just keep talking and talking and talking, and the kids are like, I thought we were leaving. What's up with this? Maybe that's what happened in the upper room. Some people believe that's what's happening, that they're still lingering in the upper room, and the prayer that Jesus prays is in the upper room. I take a different position, though, and this is just my opinion based on what I've read and what I've studied. I think they actually left at John 14. I think they're actually making their way across the city of Jerusalem. 
the upper room where they observed the Passover was a good distance from where they were going to the Garden of Gethsemane. So I think they actually left, and in chapter 15 where Jesus talks about the vine and the branches and fruit, maybe, and this is just my opinion, they're walking through the streets, they would have seen grapevines. Maybe Jesus posed, posed, uh, stops at one and, and gives that discourse on, I am the vine and you are the branches, and he's pointing to a literal vine. Maybe. Jesus makes his way across the city and he's teaching the disciples about the Holy Spirit. But in John 17, I wonder if Jesus wasn't at a very special place when he prayed this prayer. When they crossed the city, they would have had to have gone by the temple. On the other side of the temple was the eastern gate, also known as the golden gate. Jesus would have had to have gone through that eastern gate across the bridge. There's a little footbridge that went across a deep ravine. That deep ravine was part of the Kidron Valley. At the end of that bridge would have been an olive grove at the base of the Mount of Olives and probably somewhere in that area is where Gethsemane was. So Jesus would have had to have passed by the temple. And I wonder if Jesus didn't stop at the temple, maybe outside the temple proper, and this is where he fell on his face before God and prayed to his father. And John was able to overhear it. The reason I think that is because throughout John 17, there's this one thing that just keeps coming up, the glory of God. That, that God may be glorified in what Jesus is about to do, that the church has a part of that glory, that the Godhead Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, share in glory. And where would God's glory be found physically in Jerusalem, the temple. So I think Jesus is outside that temple. I think he's praying, and I want you to hear what Jesus prayed about. There are three items that Jesus prays about for you. And I want you to see the first one. First of all, verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. Here it is, verse 21. That they may all be one, just as, the, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. So Jesus says, the first thing he's requesting on behalf of God is that the body of Christ called the church be unified. Now of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for, of all the things that Jesus could have requested, why is it the first thing he requests is that the body of Christ be unified? Well, I have to imagine that Jesus looks down through the corridors of time he sees the martyrdom. He sees the tribulation. He sees the pain and the affliction that the church undergoes because of their stand upon his word and their proclamation of the gospel. I mean, it begins very early on. Jesus' disciples, after the upper room, go out and begin to proclaim the gospel. Almost immediately in the book of Acts, they begin to get persecution. They begin to get pushback. They begin to get threats. They begin to be beaten. It starts almost immediately as the church begins. And Jesus has the ability at this moment to look down through the corridors of time and see all of the pain that is inflicted upon his followers. And he doesn't pray for comfort. He, he doesn't pray that, that they'll be shielded from all of that. He prays for unity. Can it be that when Jesus looks down through the corridors of time and he sees the attacks that Satan is throwing upon the church. He sees that the primary tactic that Satan throws against the church is disunity. As a matter of fact, this morning, 
Some of you who are here haven't been in a church in a long time, and the reason you haven't been is because all you remember of your childhood about the church that you attended was hatred and arguing and fighting and splitting, and, and it is as fresh today in your heart and your mind as the day it happened. Satan has been laughing because he's been very effective at breaking down the unity of the local church. Jesus says there's a model of unity that he says he expects of the church. Here's the model. He says that they all may be one just as the Father and me, I'm in you and you are in me, and we are in us, and the, the church is in us. He says just as much as the Godhead Trinity is unified, so should the church be unified. It's pretty incredible, isn't it? Well, how is the Godhead Trinity unified? Well, you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And all down through recorded history in the Bible, we see no conflict. We see no hatred. We see no disagreement. We see perfect alignment. We see perfect unity. We see the perfect will of God being fulfilled in the world. We see no disintegration. We see no factions. We see no separation in the Godhead Trinity. They are completely unified as one. And Jesus says that in the church, he expects that kind of unity. Has that been our experience at church? He says that not only is Jesus in the Father and the Father is in him, listen to this statement. He says that they may be in us. There is a beautiful and amazing and complicated and mysterious thing here. This concept of theology that when we put our faith in Jesus that we are in Christ and Christ is in us, that's, that's incredible because I know how broken I, I've been. I know how messed up and how much I failed and right here Jesus and in his prayer is clearly saying to us that in a matter of systematic theology that we the body of Christ is in the Godhead Trinity it's mind-blowing it's powerful Jesus says that his expectation for the church is that we be one where else in the world can you find a global network of people who are doing the same work, who are doing it not for a paycheck or a benefit or that they can get their name up in lights, but do it because they love, and that this global network of people do it for free, they do it over and over again, even in, the sp even in the face of pain and persecution, even being threatened, even seeing their family be put to death, that they do it, and they do it consistently. That, that they love their neighbor as they love themselves. That they love God so much that they would never deny his name. And that all over the world, there are people doing this, and that they're unified in this single mission. Not only that, they don't expect anything in return. Where else can you find an organization by which the people in that organization will run towards a disaster, a hurricane, a tornado, a Ukrainian war, and they will set up a field hospital, or they'll set up a place where they can feed people. And they don't do it wanting a check from the government. They don't do it because they expect something in return. They do it because they love a risen Savior. Where else in the world can you find a group like that? Nowhere else except the church of Jesus Christ. And to God be the glory for that. All over the world, in remote places, there are people sharing the gospel. In remote places all over the world, there are people rendering health care to people for free. 
All over the world, there are people running towards people who are running from a disaster simply to show them love and to point them towards Jesus. There's nothing else like the church in the world. There are 4,000 Southern Baptist churches in North Carolina. 75% of those churches have plateaued or in steep decline and about to close their doors. 75%. COVID-19, the pandemic, has caused the problems that were in those churches that were already there, the problems were already there, to get much worse and to speed the whole process up. These churches were already plateaued. They were already in decline. But what COVID has done is sped the whole time on up. So there are churches all across North Carolina that were once proclaiming the gospel who are now shutting their doors and can't even pay the power bill. If you go and you look, you look closely, you'll find out that in many of those churches, not all of them, but many of them, in their history, there is division. In their history, there is fighting and arguing over things that do not matter. If you go in there far enough, you'll find out that there is hatred, there's unforgiveness, there is, there is discord, and Satan is laughing because another place that used to stand on something real is now closing its doors. And folks, all across this state and all across our country, we have places that used to stand upon the gospel and impact their communities with love and goodness are now no longer in existence. So Jesus prays for the unity of the church, a unity that is so close, so tight-knit, that it mirrors the Trinity itself. Look at the second prayer request that Jesus has. Look at verse 22. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Now hold up right there. We, we've got to unpack that statement. I've told you before that oftentimes when we read Scripture, we read it way too fast. We are, we are skimming through Scripture and we're not letting it, I don't know, marinate if you want to use, I don't need to say that before lunch, do I? I don't need to use the word marinate before lunch. But anyway, to meditate on it. Here, Jesus says that the glory that exists in the Godhead Trinity has been shared with the followers, those who put their faith in Jesus. What does that mean? What does glory mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the word glory meant, well, worship, adoration, reverence. She's used hundreds of times in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it means dignity, honor, praise, worship. In the context in which Jesus is praying, what he's saying is, is that we as followers of Jesus share in the glory of the Godhead Trinity. Not that we are to be worshiped, not that we are to be applauded, but that there is a glory, a light that is inside of us that we are to share with the world. A glory that transcends the culture, transcends the world, transcends the brokenness. Jesus says that that glory has been given to us so that the world may see a difference in us. Paul writes in Galatians 5 that the followers of Jesus are to be marked by certain characteristics, gentleness, kindness, self-control, patience, just to name a few. As we live out an ethic, a, a morality, not a morality that flows from us, but a morality that flows from the Holy Spirit in us, an ethic that we live differently than the rest of the world. the world. The world may not agree with our doctrine. The world may not agree with what we teach. The world may not agree that Jesus is the only way. But what we would hope is through the unity of the church and the love that we have for neighbor and the fact that we live differently than the rest of the world, the world could look at it and go, you know, I don't agree with you, but I can appreciate the fact that you've got a moral north, that you've got some things you just won't do. 
You've got some things that you just will not participate in, and I can appreciate that, even though I don't agree with the doctrine or the beliefs behind it. Jesus says that that kind of glory in us displayed for the world, not a glory that emanates from us, but a glory that was placed in us at the moment we put our faith in Jesus. I don't have anything to glory in myself. The only thing that I have to glory in is Jesus Christ, death on a cross, and resurrection three days later. That's all I've got, folks. But guess what? That's all I need. I don't need anything else. He says here, Jesus praying on our behalf, he says, the second prayer request is that the church will display God's glory. Great commission work, making disciples of all nations. You know what the end goal of that is? The end goal, of course, is that more people come to faith in Jesus and more people glorify God. That's the point. That as more people come to faith, more people glorify God, and that is the point. And Jesus says that in the church, the glory of the Lord should shine forth. The glory of the Lord should shine forth, shine forth in your job, on your, in your school, in your college, and where you're living your life. It should shine forth from your marriage. It should shine forth in your parenting. It should shine forth when you're on the Little League baseball field and the call doesn't go your way. It should shine forth when you're on the volleyball court and the, and the ref makes a bad call towards your kid. It's at that moment, folks, it's at that moment, the glory of God, the gentleness, the kindness, the patience should shine forth. Is it? What is the church known for in the rest of the world? What, what is the church known for in American culture beyond the Bible Belt, beyond the South? Well, the Bible Belt and outside the Bible Belt, the church is only known by what is said in the news and social media. I am portrayed and you are portrayed as people who hate or bigots or racist or any other thing you can think of because of our ethics when it concerns sexuality, what the Bible teaches. We are therefore closed-minded and we need to get with the program and we need to get up to date and we are living in the past and it goes on and on and on. So the, the majority of our culture has either no opinion towards the church or their opinion is tainted by social media and the news. Well, what about inside the Bible Belt? Those who know church, those who, who've been around in communities know what church is but will not attend. We have a lot of those here in this community. A lot of people who know what church is about, have had some experience with church, but have no desire to be part of it. What do they know about church? Well, they know, and maybe their experience has been fighting, hatred, um, saying one thing from the stage, but doing something different behind a closed door office, a lack of integrity, that, that we talk about God's love, but the very moment we have the opportunity to love someone, we treat them horrifically. The fact that we say that, that Jesus says that all of the law and all of the prophets hang on this, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as self. We were strong on the, the worship of God, but we're not so strong on the loving neighbor. Jesus said it requires both. Or, or maybe, maybe our community, and maybe the Bible Belt sees the church as just a bunch of individual locations who are in competition with one another to be the biggest and the best and the loudest and the most professional and the biggest worship team and the biggest choir and the biggest numbers and the biggest Sunday school. Maybe what they've heard for the last 20 years is that we're actually not in partnership with the churches around us. We're in competition and we're trying to beat, the, beat each other to death to get one step on the other one. Maybe, maybe they don't see pastors praying together. Maybe they see pastors running each other down. 
because they're trying to get a leg up on the guy down the street. Maybe the denominational differences are such that we can't even partner together to reach a lost and dying community, which by the way, 67% of the city of Lumberton has no relationship with Jesus, yet we have churches everywhere. Is it because the community sees our churches as competitors? We got to be the biggest, we got to be the best, we got to be this, we got to be that, and we'll run over anybody who gets in our way. Is that what Jesus is praying? Is that the kind of unity that Jesus is praying about here? Absolutely not. Jesus is not saying here, you be unified within your little body and you be uniform. This other church can be unified, but never shall the two ever meet. I'm getting ready to say something you're probably going to disagree with, and that's okay. I am a Southern Baptist because the Southern Baptists historically have stood upon God's word inerrant, authoritative. Not only that, I'm a Southern Baptist because of the missions that they're able to do globally. It's just incredible. It's incredible what they're able to do with churches partnering together to do missions. But if they ever depart from the gospel, if they ever depart from God's word, if they ever depart from their convictions, then I will no longer be a Southern Baptist. But here's the point I want to make that you may disagree with. There are other denominations in this community, and we agree on the core doctrines of the faith. The difference is, is they don't have Baptists on their sign. It may be something else. And, and my opinion is, is that denominations have caused more division over the last hundred years than anything else I can point to. Oh, some of you do agree with me. Okay, good. I'm not anti-denomination. I'm, I'm good with being a Southern Baptist. I'm good with that. But I'm, I'm concerned that that we within one denomination look at another denomination and go, well, they're not as good as us. Lord, help us. That's not what Jesus prayed. He said that we would be one. That doesn't just include what happens here. That means one with our brothers and sister churches all across this community who stand upon God's word, who stand upon the gospel. That, that hey, maybe Jesus is praying that we, we be one to such a degree that instead of doing our little thing and they doing their little thing, maybe we do it together. Last I checked, the lostness in this community is far exceeding the number of people being reached. So maybe we'd be better off if we linked arms and did it together. Why are we not? Competition which I would offer to use a sin that we need to repent of. We have just been presented with a tremendous opportunity to start breaking some of this down. And I can't wait for this to get traction and come to full fruition. I told you about all those churches in North Carolina that are, are struggling, that are, that are about to close their doors. Well, we had a church approach us here in our community and say, we need help. We need help because we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna end up closing our doors at some point or, or this, this, it's not going where we're in decline and, and we, we've seen that God has used your church. So could it be that we could enter into an agreement together and just walk together? And, and get this, the agreement we're going to go into is, is a foster. We're going to be a foster parent. How's that? Our church is going to be a foster parent for another church. I'll, I'm so excited about this. And me and the pastor of this church has been praying now for weeks together. Their church just approved this in their, in their business meeting that they would enter into a partnership with us. You're going to have an opportunity to approve it in the weeks ahead. It's Cedar Grove Baptist Church, just right down the road here. Pastor Paul Arnold, who I've got to be good friends with. As a matter of fact, Pastor Bobby, our worship pastor, guess where he's at right now? Cedar Grove, leading worship. 
This church has asked us to help them in three areas, outreach, worship, and children's ministry. Three things that God has blessed us with that we can give away to another church to help that church. And folks, we've got to be a church that gives things away, gives leadership away, gives people away to these ministries to help the church, the body of Christ, be strong and be healthy and be focused. And listen, we need every church in Robinson County healthy and focused on Great Commission work because we've got a lot of lost people in this community that need to be reached. And Cedar Grove can be reaching their community, their community, right over there where that church is. There's 536 homes around that church. 536 homes. 72% of them are lost. Right where we're sitting, we're going to begin praying over 6,000 homes around this church. 67% of them are unchurched, don't know Christ. We're going to be prayer walking every single one of those houses in the next three years. Next three years, 2,000 houses a year, prayer walking, every one of them. You'll get an opportunity to involve, be involved in that. The point being is that we have been called to be in partnership and oneness, not just as a congregation, but as multiple congregations on the same purpose, on the same mission, standing upon the same word, moving together, not in competition with one another, but praying together, serving together, working together, reaching the community. That's exactly what Jesus prayed for, and that's exactly what we've got to do. That's what we have to do. So he says that, I, that he was praying that the church not only be unified, but that the church declare the glory of God. What better way to do that than congregations working together to reach their communities? Third, the third request. The third request. He says in chapter 17, look at verse, um, look at verse 24. This, this one surprised me. I mean, I've read it before, but I don't think I really got my arms around it until I studied this this week. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This absolutely rocked my world this week. Again, I've read it many times. Probably read it too quickly. Didn't settle down into it. But here, here's what Jesus is praying. Jesus is praying, and out of this anticipation, this excitement, he's praying for the day when you and I will leave this life behind and stand before him face to face. Get this, Jesus is excited about that day. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus is excited about the day that you're going to leave this life behind and you're going to come and be with him. He says right here, Father, I desire... My desire, my anticipation, my excitement is, is that all of these people who put their faith in me are going to stand with me one day. They're going to behold my glory. They're going to behold your glory. We're going to be in a perfect environment. All the sin is going to be done away with, and all things are going to be made new. He says to his father, Father, I desire this. I'm excited about it. It's as though Jesus looked down through the corridors of time, and he saw your moment. He saw my moment. If your faith is in Jesus, he saw the moment. And it's as though right now in this moment, before the Garden of Gethsemane, before the cross, he's praying to his father and saying, Father, I see, I see when they come. I see when they put faith in me. I see when they cross from death on the life. And Father, I can't wait for that day. He's anticipating it. Have you ever had a, you ever had a trip where you went to visit a friend that you haven't seen in a long time? 
Maybe they live somewhere else. Maybe they live in Florida or California, some beautiful place, and you haven't seen them in years, and you fly there, and as soon as you get off the plane and get through all the customs and all the baggage stuff, they're there waiting on you. And they embrace you, and all of a sudden, they're like a chatterbox. They won't stop talking. And as you're walking out of the airport, they're telling you about the airport. As you're walking to their car, they're telling you about the city. As you're getting in the car, driving down the interstate, they're pointing out the buildings. They're just nonstop chattering because they're excited. Why? Because you're there. They want you to experience all that they've experienced. They want you to see the city the way they see. They want you to experience the beauty. And they just love the fact that you're there. Guess what Jesus is going to do? That moment when your faith becomes sight, that moment when you breathe your last breath here, John 14 tells us that Jesus is not sending an angel to pick us up. Jesus isn't sending Moses or David or Daniel or even one of the 11. Jesus himself says that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is coming for me. And guess what it's going to be? Hey, come over here. Let me, let me introduce you to God the Father. See the throne? Yeah, you can get on your knees. That's fine. You can get on your face. It's all good. That's what everybody does. Hey, c- hey, come with me. Let me introduce you to Paul. You remember Paul? You read about him. You preached about him. Here's Paul. Paul, this is, this is Blackburn here. He, he just made it home. Come here, boy. I got some family I want to... You remember these friends that you had? Yeah, they've been up here. They've been doing fine. Let me, let me introduce you to them. Here they are. <clears throat> remember, remember your grandfather? Yeah, we got some golden streets. We got some pearly gates, but have you seen the scars on my wrist? You know, this, this is what made it possible for you to be here. Jesus is excited about the prospect of you coming to heaven, and he's praying about it right here. Is that not mind-blowing? It is to me. You know, when I was a kid, I would think about heaven, and I would think about, well, it must be kind of like hanging out there in the stars somewhere, right? You know, in a a kid's mind about heaven, you hear it at church, you think, okay, well, out there among the galaxies is some like world floating in space, right? And it's got the walls around it and those pearly gates that you hear about. And as a kid, you think, well, maybe I can just get on a, a space shuttle, right? Or I can get on some kind of spaceship and we can travel to the edge of the universe. And, you know, a spaceship kind of pulls on, drops the ladder out of the steps out and you walk down, right? We can get there that way, right? No, not at all. In, in one sense, Paul says that the heaven is this third heaven, It's not hanging out there in space somewhere. You can't see it with a telescope. But yet equally true, it's one heartbeat away. One heartbeat away. That's how how close it is, yet how far it is. This is one thing that I know for certain is that it says in the Bible multiple times that flesh and blood cannot inherit it. All through the Old Testament, We've got people making requests to see God, Moses in particular. God, I want to see you. I want to see you. I mean, he'd been up on the mountain. God had been speaking to him, clouds and thundering and lightning, right? The the glory of God was there. Moses was in the middle of it. The people at the base of the mountain could hear God speaking, hear the rumblings. Joshua is just a little, little bit ways down the mountain, just a little bit. And And then later on when Moses would build the tabernacle, 
God's presence would dwell there in the tabernacle. Later on, when the temple was built, the presence of God, when the Ark of the Covenant was brought in to the most holy place, God's glory was there. But in John's day, where was the glory found? The glory was found in none other than Jesus himself. John chapter 1 says this, says that, that we beheld his glory, that God with flesh on, glory was in front of us, and glory walked with them, and glory taught them, and glory did miracles. God's presence with humanity, Emmanuel, God is with us. And then Jesus dies, resurrects, and ascends. Where does, the, where does the glory, where can the glory be found today? It's not found in a temple. It's not found in a building somewhere. It's found in every single follower of Jesus, everyone. Us in Christ, Christ in us. And that glory is to be displayed for the world. Why? So that the world may know that God loves them. Right here, Jesus says, after you spent your life living out that glory, then you're going to come home and be with me. And where I am, you will be also. And I'm anticipating it so much so that in John 17, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus prays to the Father, Father, I cannot wait for my people to be home with me. Does that include you? Are you, are you anticipating Jesus as much as he's anticipating you? In fact, is Jesus even anticipating your revival? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? Is Jesus anticipating your arrival? If he's not, then can it be that you've got your faith somewhere else? Jesus took the time to pray for the church that it would be unified. Jesus took the time for the, and prayed for the church that we would show the glory to the world. And Jesus took the time to pray to his father to say, Father, I can't wait till they get home. Are you anticipating Jesus as much as he's anticipating you? I think we need to wrestle with that for a few moments. I think, I think we need to pause as we worship together in this last song, I think we need to consider if we're not anticipating Jesus as much as he's anticipating us, there's a reason for that. And you need to deal with that. You need to put that on the table today. You need to deal with it. The Holy Spirit's revealing that to you for the sole purpose that you would admit it, that you would ask God to help you with it, whether that be for salvation or maybe something else has crept into your life that's become more important, whatever it may be. Now's the time to deal with that. Father, we love you. Your goodness and grace is sufficient. It was sufficient enough for me to come from darkness into light. And it's sufficient for every single person here and every single person watching online this morning. Father, we ask that during this last song as we sing about how good you are, that Father, you would reveal some things to us in our own hearts that maybe we've realized that even in our own prayer life, we just realize how selfish we've become. Well, I know I'm guilty of that. Maybe, Father, we realize that we're not living out our faith. That because of the job, because of the boss, because of the spouse, because of the kids, because of whatever, we are not known as people who are kind, gentle, loving, forgiving, patient. So, Father, your glory is not being revealed to those around us because we're not living for you. And Father, then there's some here this morning who have never put their faith in you at all. So they're not anticipating you and you're not anticipating them. Not yet. Not until they put their faith in you.
Father, it's not by any works that we are made righteous. It's not by any things that we do. But Father, as a body of Christ, may we be unified not only within this body, but with the bodies, the churches, the one body of Christ in this community. May we be unified with them and may we walk together. The task before us is great. The task before us is impossible. But Father, together, by showing your glory and being unified, Father, we can bring more glory to you and see people's lives change. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, Hyde Park.